Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Tony Hernandez, and you're listening to the Immigrant Archive Project podcast. Each week, we take a deep dive into the recesses of our project in order to bring you the voices behind some of our more fascinating conversations. If you enjoy the stories we share and want to help us bring you more, Please join with hundreds of other donors and make a tax-deductible contribution to the Immigrant Archive Project. Thanks to many of you, we've been able to collect thousands of immigrant testimonies, which are now being proudly archived at the U.S. Library of Congress. If you'd like to help us expand our work, please go to ImmigrantArchiveProject.org and click on the Donate button. That's ImmigrantArchiveProject.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you. I'm Tony Hernandez, and once again, this is the Immigrant Archive Project podcast. Our guest this week is Fred Guttenberg, a man who has lived through the unimaginable and managed to turn it into a passion for taking a stand and making a difference. Fred's teenage daughter, Jamie, was senselessly murdered in the Parkland school shooting. The day after, Fred attended a public vigil in Parkland, Florida, where the mayor asked him to speak. His words literally shook a nation, and he hasn't stopped since. Fred and his wife Jennifer now spend time challenging our elected officials to simply do more. Through the formation of their nonprofits, this is now his full-time mission. We recorded the following conversation on August 18th of 2020, in advance of the release of Fred's book titled, Find the Helpers, which reaffirms the central importance of human connection and finding purpose amid unspeakable tragedy. You know, um, we all have our story. And my story uh, really kind of went into overdrive on February 14th, 2018, the day my daughter was murdered in Parkland, Florida. But it began before that. Um, My brother, four months prior to that, had passed away from cancer related to his work in 9-11. My family was still mourning his loss when this happened. And here we are in a four-month period, a part of two national American tragedies. And I started at some point after this all happened, um, thinking about how I wanted to tell my story. And what became clear to me is I couldn't tell it without talking about all of the amazing people who were either a part of my life before or became a part of my life because of. The truth is, 
I don't get through this without them. It is the amazing people who I call my helpers. They could be friends. They could be family. It was people in media. It was people in politics. It was strangers who gave me strength, who carried me forward, who gave me the ability to actually take the words of my rabbi at my daughter's funeral seriously and say, we don't move on. We move forward. I've been able to move forward. And it is because of my helpers. And so I wrote about that. You know, I, I, I can't help but think <clears throat> that this book is really coming out at the right moment in our country's history with so much, you know, death and despair uh, in the midst of this uh, uh, global pandemic. Talk to me a little bit about the timing of the book's release. You know, the, the timing of this release um, is is certainly unexpectedly unusual <laughs> Um, because this country is going through some really tough things right now. We currently have over 160,000 people who have died recently due to coronavirus. And they die alone. They have funerals alone. They are in hospitals and they are sick alone. And they have families who go through this knowing their loved one is going through it alone because of coronavirus. So families are going through the worst of moments. Well, I understand what that is. And my hope is that with this book coming out at this time, in the height of this coronavirus, as well as in the height of um, a really charged political environment that stresses people out, that people will read my book and start to think in terms of, who are my helpers? Who's gonna help me get through it, but also who do I know who might need my help? Listen, I'd love to say we're all overly powerful and we do can get through anything all by ourselves. That's not reality. We do rely on others. We're social beings. We live in a country where as a group, we are always there for others. We stand up for others. It's in this country's DNA. And so with everything going on right now, the timing of this book, really, it could not have been better, sadly, because it means terrible things are happening. But I hope people can find some kind of help or will decide they're going to find some kind of help after reading the book. You begin chapter 11 with the following quote, following a tragedy, you end up relying on others which I think is at the very heart of your entire message. Knowing what you just shared with us, the fact that what makes this such a uniquely tragic experience is the fact that we're going through it alone, that our loved ones are in the hospitals alone. You mentioned something off camera yeah. to me before, and that's technology and how technology is playing an interesting role here. Can you speak to that? Well, listen, um, as for the time that we're in and, and going through tragedy, because um, we do rely on others. We are in this unusual time right now where being physically close isn't always easy. Um, you know, thankfully, if we wear our masks, we can get relatively close. But technology has stepped in. And I, I do think of things like Zoom 
as one of the great technological helpers because it keeps us connected. It keeps us talking. It gives family members the ability to get in front of each other in front of a computer screen and do the same kind of reminiscing or talking or crying together or laughing together that pre-corona we might have been doing in person, but at least we still get to do it. And the in-person part is going to come back. Um, but at least we get to do it together, even if it's through a computer screen. I can tell you, I have done a whole lot of Zoom conversations with people I love and care about just so we can keep things normal and sane and calm between us. And, and it's our way of, of being able to hug one another, even if it's from a distance. I, I am thankful for these technologies. I think they're going to change the way we interact with each other. Um, but in this moment, in this time, I just encourage people to use these technologies. It, you don't need to be removed from one another. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Fred, I couldn't help but think that the process that you went through of losing your brother um, perhaps helped you to a certain extent in the next tragedy that you were about to face just months later. Um, was that the case? The process of losing my brother um, was a really unique experience for me, for my family. We've never gone through loss like that before. So in, in the sense that we were dealing with loss and all that that entails, um, maybe there was a little bit of uh, help because of how close the two events happened to each other. But I can tell you, there's nothing like losing a kid. Um, and my brother and I were very close. We had 50 years together. Um, and I thought it was the worst thing possible what I was feeling until my daughter was killed. And it was a thousand times worse. Um, so I think, listen, for the first time in my life, I had to deal with loss when my brother was killed. And, and maybe there was a little bit of strange comfort for me knowing he was there waiting for my daughter. Um, but going through my daughter was a really unique experience. Um, and I just, I, I am so thankful for those that were here to go through it with me. The family that was there like that. Um, my best friends who were there immediately. I mean, listen, they, they held me up. Um, and what's, so unusual. You ask, you know, the question about my brother, they were there going through that with me as well. Um, so, uh, really thankful for, for people. I, I, I'm not sure that 
the loss of my brother helped me, but maybe I was a little more prepared than I otherwise would have been, uh, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. The connection I made reading it was I got a sense that you really understood the value of people rallying around him. And if perhaps that made you more open to accept the help of others as, as guys, we tend to be a little more closed off. We tend yeah. to be a little more, you know, we want to be John Wayne a little bit, you know, and I was just wondering if that maybe opened you up to, you know, the love that you were now getting from the people that were helping you. You know, I think that's a fair point. My brother, um, was was truly he was a giant in the world of emergency service and watching people step up for him there are so many moments especially in his last month and a half of life and then his final passing that just were so huge in my mind because of the way people were there for him um when my daughter died i'm not really sure that i expected that you know she didn't have this life of an adult where people knew her in a way that they, you know, we're going to treat her like a hero. My brother did. Um, so when people did show up in a way for her, that was just huge and overwhelming. Um, it was, it was something that, um, on the one hand, I don't know that I was totally prepared for, but on the other hand, I'm really thankful for because, and not just for me, when I think about my wife, or I think about my son, or I think about the grandparents, this show of support was huge for them as well. Um, the day of the funeral, and my son is a fire cadet, he wants to be a firefighter, and the day of the funeral, when we got there, and there were fire trucks from around the state, that were lined up. I'm going to cry talking about it. Um, that were lined up to make sure my son was okay. I'll never forget it. I apologize. No need. No need. But I get the feeling that... <clears throat> You came to the realization that this was going to be your life's mission very quickly. Walk me through if there was a moment where it crystallized and it clicked and you knew that this was going to be what you were going to dedicate the rest of your life to. For me, the moment was the night after Jamie was killed at the vigil. Now, in interviewing the Parkland mayor for this book, she says she knew that the night that Jamie was killed, she said she ran into me at the hotel where we were all going for news. It was a blur. I don't remember even seeing her there because it's just everything is a blur. But she said, I told her that night that this is going to be my life mission. I'm going after this. But it was a blur. But standing at that vigil and looking out thousands of people was the first time in 24 hours that my world kind of slowed down enough for me to say to myself, we were victims of gun violence. That's where it hit me. And I went home from the vigil that night. I walked in my door and I just said to all my friends and family at the house, um, I don't know if I can curse on this, but 
I said, I'm going to break that fucking gun lobby. That's what I want to do. I said, they're the reasons that nothing has been done and that my daughter is dead. And I, that night, I just knew I was, I didn't know what that meant, how I was going to do it, what my path was going to be or who was going to help me. But I knew it's what I wanted to do. So, okay, you've got this passion, but how do you really put it into action politically? So, um, Vice President Biden reached out to me probably about 10 days after Jamie was killed on the phone. And I was shocked when the voice on the other end of the phone was Vice President Biden. I was even more shocked when we were still talking probably 45 minutes later. And during that phone call, he spoke to me, um, well, before he even spoke to me about his grief and what he's been through, he wanted to know about my family, wanted to know about me, about Jamie, about Jesse, and about my wife, Jen. He just wanted to know who we were and what we were about. Um, and then he talked to me a bit about his family and what loss was like for them and how he got through it. And I'll never forget two words that he used with me, mission and purpose. Um, and, and I said to him, I said, that's kind of the way I'm feeling as if I need, it's like, this is now my purpose and this is what I need to do. And, and, and I just, he said, listen, he goes, you'll figure it out. He goes, this, this conversation needs your voice. And he goes, and I'll always be here if you need my help. And he meant it. Um, and then he invited me to uh, an event he was doing in Florida a few weeks later. It was a fundraiser. And bear in mind, he wasn't running for the presidency at the time. This was a fundraiser for Bill Biden's foundation. Um, and I went with another one of the Parkland dads. I had thought that when we got there, you know, we would kind of shake his hand. Um, shocked when he pulled us aside into a private room because he had 200-something people waiting to hear him speak. And again, even more shocked when about 40, 45 minutes later, he was still talking to us. About 20 minutes into that conversation, I, I said to the vice president, I said, you have a, like a room full of 200 people waiting to hear you speak? And he just said to us, this is more important. That's the kind of guy he is. During that conversation, he said something to myself and the other dad that probably has been the single most helpful thing anybody has said to me since losing my daughter. And he talked to us about going through this with our families and how no two people go through grief the same way and to be prepared for that. And he talked to us about the reality of how many marriages fail after something like this and how um, many families encounter tough times after moments like this because people aren't prepared to go through it differently. So, and he said, he's like, I'm not trying to scare you. He goes, but I want you to have a plan. I want you to know how you're going to get through this with your family, going through it differently, but being able to support each other as you go through it, the ways that you need to get through it. Um, he was a thousand percent right. And because he gave us the heads up then, it gave me 
the ability to make sure I'm always working on that and that my family is going to be okay. Did you hear from the president? I did not. Um, I did not hear from the president um, then. And I really uh, got angered by the president only days later um, when we were burying my daughter. Uh, The morning that we buried my daughter, the president put out a tweet talking about what happened in Parkland, and he blamed it on the Russia investigation. And he politicized the murder of my daughter. Uh, I was enraged, to be quite honest. And uh, when I read the tweet, I just got into this mode of, of being so angry. And my wife was just trying to tell me to let it go, forget about it, because we need to get on to our funeral for my daughter. Uh, but I couldn't. And the way I get through things, it's, the, it's really become my tool is to write. It gets things out of me. It gets them off my chest. So I sat down and I rewrote the ending of my eulogy for my daughter um, because it helped me to just kind of get it out of me. And um, after that became public, um, I really didn't think I'd ever hear from the president again. And I haven't, and I'll be real honest with you at this point, there's no need to. Um, He has failed on this issue. He has used this issue for political purposes. He's not gonna stop being who he is. And I just want to be certain that I play a role in helping to have him fired. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. You mentioned in the book that you avoided the media early on, and then the media became somewhat of an ally. Um, Having gone through this, what are your takeaways with regard to the power of not only the media, but specifically social media? Well, you know, with regards to the media and how I feel about them, um, I avoided them for the first week. That first week was about my family. Um, And then a week later, the night of the CNN town hall, I did a couple of quick CNN interviews, and then I was there for the town hall. And I got to be a part of this event where it was clear the media has a, 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 a just a huge role in ensuring we will tell this story. The next morning... Um, which for me really crystallized how important the media is to me. I did an interview on Morning Joe. Um, I think we were scheduled for four or five minutes, and it ran, I think, 22. And, and, and Joe Scarbo, Joe Scarbo and Mika Brzezinski 
they could not have been any more decent, any more compassionate, any more caring. And they just allowed me to tell my story, to talk about my daughter, to talk about what her loss meant to us, and to talk about where I think this country needs to go on this issue. Um, after that interview, I just, I never looked at the media in a negative way again. Um, now, listen, there are some people in media who clearly have agendas, and, and that's fine. You know, I mean, not everybody's perfect, but almost everyone I've dealt with in media has had one goal to make sure they're there to support people like me, victims of gun violence, and to and, and to continue telling these stories so that this country, unlike times in the past, doesn't walk away from this. You know, the one thing they all ask is, what can we do for you? And all I would ever say is, continue finding ways to tell this story. And I'm very thankful for them because they have been helpers in such a huge way on this issue of gun violence. And right now, families like mine need helpers. You have 40,000 people a year in this country who are dying because of gun violence. We need helpers. And the media, they keep telling these stories. They are helpers, and I'm thankful for them. Having been out there now as long as you have and sort of leading, leading the charge, what has been the response from uh, the American people? And what about that response has, has surprised you? That the majority of them want to do something about gun violence. Um, you know, before my daughter was killed, I thought that there was a much bigger divide than there actually is. And what I've learned is while the majority of American people, the majority of gun owners agree we need to do something, um, there is organizations whose leadership feels differently than most people, and they spend the money that holds the legislators and legislation hostage. So I really thought there were more people who were parts of these organizations who disagreed with what I want to do, and that's not the case. You can look at the polls. I mean, just look at background checks. Over 90% of all people in this country polled want to do something about background checks. And if you look at gun owners, the vast majority of them want to as well. This is not rocket science. We can do something. And most people agree. But, you know, I when I look back upon that first week after Jamie was killed and my desire to break the gun lobby, it's because the leadership of this lobby has used money to hold legislators and legislation hostage, and they've done it successfully but they are now breaking, and this election, we are going to break them permanently. It's Their time is up. I don't know too many guys that have the future president on speed dial, but uh, apparently you're one of them. If you could speak to him and sort of have the stars align and they could pass um, gun legislation that you would approve of, what would that look like? What would be the perfect scenario for you? You know, so there's a, there's a lot of pieces to that. You know, we've got we've to first deal with background checks so that we know who's buying guns. 
I would extend that to ammunition because you already have 400 million weapons on the streets of America today. And there are people who should not be in possession of a gun, but are, and they can walk into a store right now and freely buy ammunition and make that gun useful. So I would extend background checks to ammunition. I would ban high capacity magazines. I would ban assault weapons, but the vice president and soon to be president also knows for me, if you want to solve this issue, you repeal PLACA, which is a law that right now shields the entire gun industry from lawsuits. You want to change things, make the gun manufacturers and the gun industry the similar to what happened with tobacco. What broke tobacco was litigation. Okay, When those CEOs had to go on the stands and tell the truth about what they were doing and what they knew, it changed everything. Well, the CEOs of the gun industry know they're currently marketing their weapons to kids. They know kids are accessing those weapons. They know that they're building weapons at a rate higher than what they say their intended market is. They know those weapons are going to end up on the streets and they know those weapons are going to be used to kill people like you and me. And they also know they're doing nothing about it. They are responsible. And so if you want to change things, you repeal PLACA, that changes everything. Okay, let us go after that industry. And I can assure you that industry is going to change the way they behave. Um, we also need to study gun violence. So we need to fund it through the CDC. The, for too many years, the CDC has been unable to study this issue. They've been unable to call it what it is, which is a public health crisis. And they've been unable to make recommendations. Well, you know what? Let's change that. So there are so many things that we can do and we can do them immediately if we change the president and flip the Senate. And come November 3rd, we are going to, because if we don't, your life could be at risk. And I don't want that to happen. Regardless of where you stand on the issue of gun safety, we can all agree that no parent should ever have to endure the pain and suffering that the Guttenberg family have lived with for the past four years. Fred's ability to draw strength and purpose from unimaginable grief is certainly a testament to his character. But more importantly, perhaps, his ability to find hope within the darkness by relying on the kindness of family, neighbors, elected officials, and even perfect strangers is a reminder of our shared humanity and our duty to one another, especially in times of tragedy. If you'd care to support Fred's efforts, please visit his foundation's website at orangeribbonsforjamie.org. That's orangeribbonsforjamie.org. The Immigrant Archive Project is edited and co-produced by Edie Gonzalez. Our director of photography is Daniel Godoy. For more stories, please visit us online at immigrantarchiveproject.org. I'm Tony Hernandez. Thanks for listening. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life 
I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.